Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding both the science and practice of medicine according to the principles of the Catholic faith. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or of the Catholic Medical Association. Today, our guest will be Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yes, he did die 10 years ago, but he still speaks to us today through his powerful writing. And this show will air during the week of the 100th anniversary of his birth. And we are going to be looking at how this prophetic man saw health care in the Soviet Union and how there are striking similarities to our current American healthcare system. But first, Chris is going to lead us through some interesting discussions of current medical news. Well, Tom, the first thing we're going to talk about is a report from the Washington Post. You know, that's a newspaper up near Washington. Yes, D.C., not the state. <laughs> that's right. Uh, looking at the number of abortions in the United States hit a historic low in 2015. Now, 2015 is uh, the most recent year that the data is available. And this is coming from the CDC. So in 2015, we saw a decrease of 2% in the number of abortions over 2014. Interestingly, it's 638,000 some odd abortions down from 652 some odd thousand abortions in 2014. That doesn't sound like a very big change. What's uh, unusual well, here? Well, the chain continues if we look at other years. So the abortion rate was 11.8 abortions per thousand women. Uh, compared with 12.1 abortions per thousand women in 2014 and 15.9 abortions per thousand women in 2006. So it has steadily declined uh, throughout all these years. Now, they point out, interestingly, in the years immediately after abortion was legalized nationwide, that there was a, a sharp increase uh, in the number of abortions. And it reached its peak, um, and would you be surprised to know, 1980, interestingly. So it's been going down since 1980. It's been going down. It's now half of what it was in 1980. Um, of course, what strikes me interesting about this report is how those who wish to analyze the data disagree. Uh, so, <laughs> so many have suggested that the imp uh, improved contraceptive use uh, and access to contraception and access specifically to emergency contraception has played a role in the long-term uh, decline in the abortion rate. So let's define terms. So abortion here is referring to surgical abortions. Well, it's interesting. That's part of the problem. So all of the states don't report this the same way. Oh. And in this data, California, Maryland, and New Hampshire didn't even participate in the data collection. And every state defines an abortion the way they choose to define an abortion. And what that means is some states will include the RU486 yes. so-called chemical abortions and other states will not. But interestingly, regardless of reporting, there does seem to be a pretty dramatic, fortunately, trend in a, in a fewer number of abortions. So those from the Guttmacher Institute, if you're familiar with that I organization, am. they are a self-described uh, progressive organization that supports abortion. Not my words, not your words. That's the Guttmacher Their Institute's words. Yes. words. Uh, they say it's because of uh, increased access to contraception. And then they point out that it could also be because so many states are decreasing access to abortion. Now, interestingly, in this article, Chuck Donovan, who's the president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is the research arm of the Susan B. Anthony list, they oppose abortion. Yes. They point out that a higher percentage of women today that decide to carry their unintended pregnancies and more importantly, the pro-life views among young women have dramatically changed um, such that abortion is not nearly as popular an option as it used to be. That's good news. Uh, well, I think you and I and most of our listeners would agree that that's good news. But this idea that increased contraception access decreases the number of abortions is interesting, but it turns out the data doesn't support that at all. I was wondering. Uh, and some of the places that we find that it's been shown not to support that is from the Guttmacher Institute, interestingly. Ooh. But there's an institution on the East Coast, you may have heard of it, it's called Princeton University. 
Yes, that's in uh, the Garden State, New Jersey. <laughs> so James Trussell uh, uh, published 23 studies looking at emergency contraception and the effect on unintended pregnancy rate and abortion. Would you guess no reduction in unintended pregnancy, no reduction in elective abortions? What did Dr. Trussell say about that? Well, interestingly, I'll, you know, in the interest of time, I won't go through all the editorial comments, but you know, the data was the data. It didn't show any, any uh, change in the abortion rate whatsoever. Interestingly, also, our friends from the Guttmacher Institute looked at four states, New York, California, high access to contraception, yes. uh, Kansas, and the Dakotas, low access to contraception. Would you believe the abortion rate was the lowest in Kansas and the Dakotas, highest in New York and California? So those states who have free contraception, free emergency contraception... Had more abortion. Had more abortion. So this idea that if we just had more access to contraception, we'd see fewer abortions. If we just pour more gasoline on the fire, it'll eventually go out. It'll eventually go out from all that liquid. (laughs) Yes. And then one final study from uh, our friends in Sweden... Uh, looking at we ad- have friends everywhere. <laughs> we do. The Doctor Doctor Show reaches far and wide. In the journal Adolescent Sexual Health in Sweden, uh, looking at a study back in 2002, they looked at data from 95 to 2001. Unlimited access to contraceptive counseling, free, free oral contraceptives, free emergency contraception. The teen abortion rate rose from 17 per thousand to 22 and a half per thousand. So this idea that contraception and free access to it will decrease abortions, there's simply no data to support that. So there is a relationship with con- between contraception and abortion. It's not the one, though, that the abortion supporters want to see. They want to see it the other way. And, and I understand that it's a logical uh, assumption to say, well, there'll be less abortions if there are less pregnancies. But it turns out it just isn't true in the data. Interestingly, isn't it? Probably because it changes the mindset. You know, and moving on, another study from our uh, that was published, uh, a, a study that was published in our friends from EWTN, which we listen to carefully. Uh, <laughs> they looked at something interesting from a company called Genomic Prediction. I don't know if you've heard. Oh, of these I'm quite aware of this. Yes, uh, they have developed a test now that will permit patients to test and screen their embryos in inf- infertility clinics for IVF uh, procedures and allow them to choose not only which embryos will have uh, which sex or maybe single gene disorders like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia. They're looking at intelligence uh, and looking at what they call mental problems. Uh, More specifically, they can test for type 1 and type 2 diabetes, for coronary artery disease, uh, atrial fibrillation, breast cancer, hypothyroidism, mental disability. Interesting things like this would allow uh, those who have created embryos in a laboratory to pick and choose among those embryos based on their test for intelligence and the potential for intelligence and discard the other embryos. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Amazingly frightening. Um, You know, I'm glad that I was conceived before any of this came out because on that list, there's several reasons why I would have been rejected. (laughs) (laughs) But if our listeners want to read more from this company, it's really fascinating reading. It's Genomic Prediction. If you just Google that uh, that name, you'll learn maybe more than you'd like to learn uh, about some of these issues. But there's absolutely no ethical way from the standpoint of a Catholic that this could ever be done because the embryo at that stage is developing in mom's womb. Well, uh, it's, it's developing in a lab at this phase. It, so, so, well, they are, yes, but... It started. Yes. Yeah. So imagine they're conceived in an immoral way through in vitro right. fertilization. They're kept in a laboratory. And then the parents, through the help of a laboratory technician, are choosing among the best of maybe their 10 embryos, you and I would call them babies. Yes. That's hard to imagine. You and I both have large number of children, not as large as I would like. Can you imagine choosing among them no. who's superior, who's no. inferior? Absolutely not. Um, and then continuing, Tom, with sort of our, our theme, our sobering theme of euthanasia that we've been talking about recently, uh, there's a doctor um, being prosecuted 
for inappropriate use of euthanasia uh, by the Dutch. Isn't that interesting? I didn't think that was even possible. Right. In The Hague, Dutch authorities are prosecuting a physician for euthanizing an elderly woman with dementia in the first case of its kind since the practice was legalized in 2002. Now, immediately, I didn't realize it had been legal uh, since 2002, but, but it has been. This was a 74-year-old woman with dementia who apparently at one point had expressed a desire um, not to live, but at other points had expressed a desire to live. So her physician gave her a sedative and coffee uh, while her family uh, helped the physician administer the drug to take her life. The problem was the sedative didn't work, and the 74-year-old became very irate and stood up at one point and had to be... um, had to be restrained by her family members while the physician administered the drug that ultimately took her life. Uh, isn't that amazing? She was protesting. She was protesting. And they continued. And they continued. This is what people fear. This, this is murder. Yes, I can't absolutely. think of a better word. Uh, so that's happening. So whenever we talk about euthanasia, as we've been doing with some of our other guests, I think it would be easy to do a little bit of an eye roll and say, that could never happen. That could never happen. It just but did. It just did um, in the Netherlands. So be careful. And after that uh, fire hydrant of medical news, we'll now go to one solitary question for a medical trivia question of the day. According to the 2016 American Hospital Association annual survey, every day in the United States, one out of every how many patients is cared for in a Catholic hospital? One out of every how many patients in the United States are taken care of in a Catholic hospital? We'll be back with the answer after Alexander Solzhenitsyn joins us. Stay tuned. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. We're back with the second segment of our show where we're going to imagine a world without Catholic doctors with some insights from a Soviet dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You've heard of him, haven't you, Chris? Yes. In fact, I've spoken with him recently. (laughs) Chris? Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was born December 11th, 1918 in Russia and died in Russia uh, August 3rd, 2008, so nearly 90 years old. And he was awarded the Nobel Prize in uh, Literature, not Medicine, we are a medical show, in 1970. But he had a very difficult life. When he was born, his father had already died. Yeah, his father died when his mother was pregnant with him. And uh, he became a a supporter of socialism back in the mid-30s and was fighting on the Russian front in 1945, uh, early in the year, and was arrested because in personal letters he had criticized Joseph Stalin with a friend. Amazing fighting for the cause wasn't enough. <laughs> in fact, he was a leader of a, of a little battery of people and did very well, got uh, awards for heroism. And yet he was arrested and was placed in eight years in the, the prison camps, in the work camps, the gulags. In fact, that's a word that he made a common word Uh, in the West, because it was a Russian word, through his book, The The Gulag Archipelago. But he wrote a book called Cancer Ward, because in the early 1950s, he came down with what was thought to be a stomach cancer while he was in exile. Well, actually, first, when he was in a prison camp, he had it surgically removed. Then he went into exile a year later, and the tumor came back. So he was taken from exile and sent to Uzbekistan, the city of Tashkent. And can you imagine, he was treated with radiation in the mid-1950s. My, that could not have been good. Uh, they, they had not really figured out doses of things very well. Toxicities, side it, effects. It, exactly. Uh, and miraculously, he lived. And in fact, never had a recurrence of the tumor. But he wrote a book about his experience there. Uh, And it gives us some insights into what's happening with medical care today. In fact, um, I I did a lot of research for this, gave a talk recently at Notre Dame about this. And I thought since it's the 100th anniversary of his birth, December 11th, and because he has some insights for us, it would be worth discussing. So what would a world without Catholic doctors be like? And 
Do you think people have thought of what a world like that would look like? Well, there are worlds like that. For instance, his world. <laughs> his world. But it's happening. It's happened in my world, in my training. I had medical student colleagues. When I gave a talk on alternatives to abortion for a woman with an unplanned pregnancy and gave alternatives besides abortion, I was told that all my classmates hated me. Because in the talk, where I never mentioned morality, I mentioned that abortion ends the life of a baby. They, they didn't like that. They imagined a world without a Catholic doctor. In my third year of medical school, I gave a talk to an obstetrics and gynecology students on a rotation in a hospital on the, medical, the scientific aspects of natural family planning. A Catholic physician stopped me halfway through and said he couldn't stand listening <laughs> to it, even though I was just quoting from their journals, fertility and sterility. Um, and the like. Con- right. Yes, and the like. And I asked him why, why he, he stopped me. He said, well, because I'm a Catholic Eucharistic minister. I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? And by the way, you shouldn't be. But he did. That's the way he thought. And then in my internship, my first two months were supposed to be in obstetrics and gynecology. And when I informed the head of the rotation that I wouldn't prescribe contraceptives or assist with sterilizations, he said I would be useless. (laughs) Somehow, I thought that women's health care had more to do than just contraception sterilization. I guess it shows what I know as a man. But it is interesting, the idea that if in the absence of someone uh, to voice those things that you and some of us have been willing to voice, that is a world without Catholic doctors because we're the voice that will stand up and say these things. Exactly. And when I'm saying Catholic doctors, I'm in a way saying it with a small c, Mm. Catholic. Uh, I'm not saying members of the Catholic Church. And in fact, uh, for the, the purpose of this exercise... I'm defining Catholic very simply as a physician who believes in a loving God who made us and a physician who believes that patients have dignity and should be treated as persons, as ends, and not as means or objects. Just those two simple things. That's how I'm defining a Catholic doctor. So the setting of the book Cancer Ward, and you can buy it. It's a very easy read. Solzhenitsyn got the Nobel Prize in Literature because he's a very good writer. In fact, there are sections in there where he has physicians talking to each other alone in their, in their little alcove, and it's amazing how he just nails the way that physicians see patients, see each other, what they're worried about. And I talked to his son, Ignat, recently about this very thing. And his son said, no, he never would have been in those situations. But yes, his intuition was incredible. So the, the hero of the story or the protagonist is a young man named Oleg Kostoglodov. It literally means bone chewer, mm. his last name. But Oleg is really uh, Solzhenitsyn himself. He's a man in, who's 34 years old. He spent time in exile after being in the prison camps. And he has, guess what, a stomach tumor, just like Solzhenitsyn. He's there to be treated by the antagonist, Dr. Ludmila Dantsova. She is a radiation oncologist in the mid-1950s. I didn't know there was such a thing back then, but I did a little re- research, and there actually was. In fact, it was the time when radiology, you know, the you know, looking at x-rays, CT scans, was dividing into two different arms, the treatment arm of radiation oncology and the diagnostic arm. Of imaging. Of imaging, right. So from his book, there are clearly three key consequences of what happens if you have a culture that actively prevents a Catholic physician from being present or a society that dismisses the presence of God. And, And to make it simple... All three of these involve depersonalization. In other words, treating a person like an object. So the first thing is patients are depersonalized. And in the book, um, Costa Glodov says, you know, nobody will explain anything to me. I can't stand it. In other words, in the Soviet system, patients were just objects there to be treated at the whim of the physician, and they weren't even told what their disease was, what the treatment was supposed to do, what the side effects were. In fact, he gets into trouble because he finds a pathology book and starts reading about his disease, and the medical student whose book it was says, that's strictly against the rules to do that. (laughs) Now, we wouldn't do that here in the U.S., I hope. But then his doctor, Don Sova, says, it's a frightening thought to consider treating a a patient as a subject on their own. Can you imagine saying that? Why would that be frightening? I don't know, but it was to her. And and this will come back in the end 
uh, to bite her, and you'll see. But is this is this reality much different than when a patient shows up? Is the first thing they're asked, what's wrong? What's your medical problem? Or is it, what's your insurance? So is that treating a patient as an object or a subject? There's a transaction waiting to happen. A transaction, an exchange, yes. And, you know, it's not a far reach. Many of our colleagues are offended when their patients read those books about themselves and about their disease. We just happen to call books the Internet today, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. But when pa- we, we think it odd, you and I don't, of course, but some of our peers think it's odd when patients want to know more about what's wrong with them, what their disease process is, so they can make informed, participative and, and, decisions. And we think that's good. And I'm going to show later on how... While the underlying uh, understanding of humanity in some ways is similar with the Soviet system, it's, it's turned on to the other side of the coin. But we'll get to that later. Secondly, if patients are depersonalized, so are the doctors. They're, they're treated as objects. In, in the book, it says that Soviet doctors have to see nine patients an hour. Well, if you've got a complicated patient, you're not going to get through very much. And the doctor, Dantsova, who's treating Kostoglodov, says she's not there to treat suffering. She's there to save life, no more and no less. Mm. In other words, she has a personal imperative. It's to cure the body, not to care for the person. And yet, Kostoglodov, at one point, the radiation is actually working. His horrible pain is gone. And what does he want? He wants to go home. Mm. But she won't let him because she hasn't determined that he's cured. In other words, she doesn't care what matters most to the patient. She just wants to cure the body. So again, the physician and patient treated as objects. Now, there is an article, an infamous article to many of us, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in April of 2017 by two medical ethicists, uh, Ronit Stahl and um, Ezekiel Emanuel. And they say in this article on conscientious objection that doctors must be willing to do any procedure deemed medically legal by their specialty societies. And they said if you disagree, then you have to select an area of medicine. They give the example of radiology that will not put them into an ethical bind. Or if there is no area without an ethical bind, just leave medicine. In other words, doctors have become vending machines. And this Emmanuel uh, person, this is not an, obs- uh, an obscure historical figure. This is, this is the main author of the Accountable Care Act, or so-called Obamacare, who said, you have to do what we say you should do or move on. Right. So he's treating patients like objects and physicians, physicians as like objects. objects. So if patients and physicians are treated like objects, what happens? The doctor-patient relationship becomes depersonalized. There's a place in the book, uh, Cancer Word, where the patient, Costa Glodov, says to Don Sova, his doctor, what gives you the right to make decisions for somebody else? And she is shocked. She says, well, of course doctors have that right. Doctors above all else. How would there be medicine without it? But her conscience is pricked, and she goes to her mentor. She's about 50 years old in the book. Her mentor, Dr. Oroshenkov, is a family physician about 75 years old, and she goes to try to unload her conscience on him. And as they're talking, they're talking about the Soviet healthcare system, and she rhapsodizes about how wonderful, how great an achievement universal free health care is. And her mentor looks at her and says, Well, it's not free. It's just depersonalized. (laughs) He says that what happens in clinics is that mostly patients come in trying to get a pension card uh, or disability. They're trying to get off of work. They're, They're trying to scam the doctor. And he says, physicians and patients as enemies. This isn't the way medicine's supposed to be, but that's what it had become. Well, it's interesting that about 20 years ago, um, Uh, what's his name, Milton Friedman, the famous economist, wrote an article based on Cancer Ward about finding a way out of Soviet-style health care. He said that we've lost the sense of having our own doctor. Dr. Oroshenkov said that, and Friedman quotes Oroshenkov because that's happening in our society, too. We're losing the sense of our own doctor, of our family doctor. But it's (laughs) Stalin Emanuel in their article say that the physician-patient relationship 
is not a relationship of equals and cannot be a mutual covenant. They say physicians wield power over patients is licensed medical gatekeepers. And and that was in response to a guest on our previous show, Wes Ely, who actually wrote to doctors Stalin Emanuel and said, wouldn't you agree that physicians are and patients are in a mutual covenant relationship? And they said, absolutely not, mm. which is startling because that's what the Soviets would have said too. Well, we'll be back with what's the cause of this problem and what, how do we solve the problem in America after the break. We're back with the second half of our interview with Alexander Solzhenitsyn virtually through his book, Cancer Ward, with insights that can help us for maybe how we look at medicine today. Solzhenitsyn gave a famous talk in 1983. He was awarded the Templeton Prize in Religion. And he said that when he was a young boy, he remembered hearing the elderly people saying, all these horrible things have happened to Russia for one reason and one reason only. Men have forgotten God. It's an unusual thing to have a, a Soviet say, we might think. Oh, and here's a great point that I learned from Solzhenitsyn, is that man is to disease as Russia is to Soviet Union. Hmm. In other words, the Soviet Union was the disease placed upon the Russian people. Hmm. So he always considered himself a Russian, never considered himself a, a Soviet. Soviet. That's interesting. That's... Uh, uh, and and uh, his son made that very same point when he spoke um, in early November at uh, at Notre Dame. So, you know, Solzhenitsyn had this other famous quote that says that, you know, having refused to recognize the unchanging higher power above us, of God, we have filled that space with personal imperatives, and life has become a harrowing prospect indeed. You know, a personal imperative, I do it because I will it. And that's like the modern idea of the all-glorious power of choice. Mm. Choice has become all. As, you know, on our last show, as our guest said, autonomy. Autonomy is, is the, the altar of autonomy. That, that suddenly became the ethical principle that's the penultimate. So, you know, what's the solution to these problems? Well, we had three problems, so we have three-part solution. The patient should be treated as a subject on his own with unconditional respect. Uh, and they should have, as Milton Friedman said in his editorial, the freedom to choose physicians who have the same values they do. That was not present in the Soviet system. Uh, Arguably, that's increasingly not present in our system, isn't it, with networks and PPO panels and, and, and the, the economic barriers to moving beyond the physician that the insurance company says that you have to see. Exactly. So it really limits freedom. And part of that, Friedman would say, is because of the way medicine is paid for. Um, back in the book, Dr. Oroshenka, the 75-year-old family physician, thinks that physicians should be paid only if their patients like them and like what they got from them. They shouldn't be paid no matter how good or poor their service is, but they're going to get paid no matter what. And a lot of that happens today because the exchange is through a middleman. With Medicare and Medicaid, the middleman is the government. With insurance companies, they're the middleman. There, there's not a direct relationship. There's always some invisible person in the room, uh, which is sad. Not only should patients be treated as subjects on their own, but so should physicians. It's interesting, in the Vatican's Charter for Healthcare Workers, it mentions that not only should a, a physician or nurse's conscience be tolerated, but it's actually an asset to the patient. And in fact, the guest that we're going to have on on the next show I heard speak at Notre Dame, he said that implicitly every time a patient comes in to meet with a doctor, their conversation of itself will be a moral conversation. There can't be any medical conversation that's not in some way. So, except that every physician has a conscience, has values that they hold, and this is part of the physician. You know, don't treat us as, as vending machines. 
And Dr. Oroshenkov really puts a high value in the book on the family doctor. He says they're the most comforting figure often in our lives, and now they're being pulled up by the roots. He says, a good family doctor knows the needs of each member of the family like a mother knows the tastes of each of their children. And, and this line really got me, but I know family physicians who love this next line. They said, the search for a family physician is as intimate as a search for a husband or wife, but it's become even more difficult to find someone who'll look at you personally as long as you want, who understands you fully and truly. But that really flies into the face of what you might call the commoditization of the patient-physician relationship. Your relationship is not with an individual. It's with a corporate entity. Yes. Maybe that's a big hospital system. And that in the, if, you, if you look at what the hospital systems are doing, they put clinics in locations that seem attractive. Not the individual, but the location somehow seems attractive. I right. wouldn't want to drive an extra five minutes for a relationship with my family physician for the next 50 years. But I might go to a location as long as there's just somebody there. In a storm, any port will do. Yes, and that's so sad that maybe some people are becoming accustomed to that. But when we went into medicine, I don't think that's what any of us were hoping for. Well, rare is it in many markets that an alternative to that is available. For some patients, there is no alternative to that. Right. Uh, So showing that even though, and you know, the physician-patient relationship, uh, you know, the third part of the solution, this is going to show where it's seems like it's the opposite of the Soviet problem, but it's really the other side of the same coin. The solution, of course, is to treat each other, physician and patient, both as subjects who love each other instead of objects who use each other. Because that's what's really happening with the commoditization of medicine, as well as what was in the Soviet system. The opposite is here. In the Soviet system, the physician had all the power. In the modern American idea, it's like the, the patient's autonomy has all the power and the physician is expected to do what they want. In neither of them is it what Dr. Edmund Pellegrino, who was a famous Catholic bioethicist, said was a, a mutual covenant relationship of physician and patient. Interestingly, too, and we'll talk about this more with a guest later who's been through the medical training sort of system recently, but what does this objectification do to the types of people who choose to pursue medicine as a profession? Oh, they they are in it more for the money and the lifestyle, perhaps, than they would be for the relationships with the patients and how they impact their lives. Yeah, there's nothing, there's no covenant involved between you and your insurance company. No. It's a transaction. And the physician owes more to the organization that might employ them than maybe to the patient, which I think is wrong. Yeah, it's been an insidious slide and change um, through time, hasn't it, in many, many markets. So we've gone from paternalism in the book Cancer Ward in the Soviet system to consumerism. So from a physician-driven system in the Soviets, patient-driven here, but... The, the commonality here is that they're both materialistic. They both deny a higher power of God. They both deny the infinite dignity of the human person, both in the patient and, and in, the, in the physician. And it destroys the potential for there to be a mutually respectful, loving relationship through time. Yes. And it was, I just love the way Solzhenitsyn shows this in his book and brings in the character of Oroshenkov to represent somebody, a physician who has this this view of human dignity that squares with reality. And, you know, we talk a little bit on the show about the Catholic Medical Association. Why? What is one reason I think they're important? Because of this number, 57%. 57% was the answer to a survey done in December 2016 on Medscape.com on what percentage of physicians, given the right circumstances, would kill their patient, would euthanize their patient. Frightening. 57% said they would be willing to in the right circumstance. Yes, even if they personally disagreed with it because of worshiping on the altar of autonomy. So I think that uh, we can learn a lot from reading Solzhenitsyn if you have not read anything by him. I remember in ninth grade we read his book, uh, Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which was actually a day for a prisoner in a gulag in the Soviet Union. I highly recommend his reading. Hopefully you found something interesting or fascinating here. And on Dr. Doctor, we'll be back with our Lineker for the laity portion of this show. Stay tuned. 
we are back uh, with our last segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. And, of course, that always means the answer to the medical trivia question. So, Tom, restate the question. In the 2016 American Hospital Association annual survey, every day in these United States, one in every how many patients is cared for in a Catholic hospital? Well, it's not one out of one, but it is one out of six. In other words, about 17% of patients in the United States every day are cared for in Catholic hospitals. And right now in the United States, or at least most recent on their their website of Catholic Hospital Association, there are about 654 Catholic hospitals in the United States out of a total of 5,534 hospitals. So we our church does provide a substantial amount of health care in the United States. Which seems only fitting since we invented the idea of hospitals. Yeah, way back uh, almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, the Catholic hospital. Which uh, brings us to our next segment, the Lineker for the Laity. Today we have with us uh, a previous guest on the show, a young obstetrician-gynecologist, Jonathan Scrafford, who's in private practice in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, if you want to hear some more of him, he was on episode number nine, yes, single digits, of Dr. Doctor that first aired on March 2nd of 2018. He, uh, about a year and a half ago, finished his residency at the University of Minnesota, but then moved to Kansas with his wife and is being prolific as a father and a doctor. Welcome back, Jonathan Scrafford. Hi, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Jonathan, always good to have another OBGYN on the show. When Tom was talking about a young OBGYN, I'm sure a lot of our listeners thought he meant me. So it's good, it's good to have you. You are younger than me, Chris. That's right. It's good to have you with us. You wrote yeah, an article that was published earlier in 2018 in the Lineker Quarterly called Mirror of Patients, a reflection on the honor of serving as a male obstetrician gynecologist. Now, I have to admit, when I went to medical school, obstetrics and gynecology uh, frightened me greatly. So I was, I'm wondering what was different or, or deficient in me compared to, to the two of you, uh, and I'm asking you now, Jonathan, what, what is it that led you to that field that excited you, that seemed to fulfill your being? Yeah, it's a good question. As, as with a lot of people who chose their specialties, there were a lot of factors that went into it. But, you know, one of the biggest things that just drove me interiorly was just when I was in medicine and medical school, I always found that women made great patients to work with. Um, you know, there were definitely great male patients in all specialties, too. But especially on my OBGYN rotation, I just found that women as a population were a great group to work with. They were generally more motivated about their health than, than men, at least in what I observed, and they tended to really engage in that therapeutic alliance that, um, that doctors really want to engage with in their patients. And that was one thing that I carried with me through all of medical school, just um, an attraction to that patient population as a provider. Yeah, I would have to say, you know, listening to you say that, I, I think I was very influenced uh, I'll say it differently. I thought men were horrible patients. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. I liked urology as a specialty, but the idea that most of the patients would be men was, a, <laughs> was a non-starter for me. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I really liked the uh, instructor that I was first exposed to, and his name is Dr. Patrick Duff, and he's still at the University of Florida. And interestingly, he was a great Catholic man. Now, at the time, I wasn't Catholic. But he just, he just exuded honor and dignity and a, a caring, compassionate way that I think I may have been more attracted to him originally than I was the specialty. Did you have similar sort of faculty experiences, Jonathan? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I would say in OBGYN, there weren't as many role models that I identified in medical school, but certainly in other specialties, I had a lot of faculty members that I really look up to and that I tried to pick up, you know, different personality traits from. I, I think that's definitely true. So it's interesting. So Chris was initially motivated by a physician, but you, Jonathan, were more motivated by your interaction with the patients. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, especially on that one rotation in particular, I just found, you know, this is amazing to be able to work with women day in and day out. And I just, and it, it probably just was, I just felt more consistently that patients were engaging with me and engaging with their healthcare. You know, all it takes is every now and then to have, you know, a bad patient experience where it just seems like the patient's just not engaged to to kind of, you know, take the wind out of your sails a little bit. And I just found that happened 
not as often in OBGYN as in other specialties. Hmm, interesting. So, so Jonathan, what led you to write this reflection, Mirror of Patients? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the original thing that made me start thinking about it was that I um, was reading something, some kind of spiritual text, and there was a litany in there that had um, a term for St. Joseph that I'd never heard before. It was mirror of patience, patience being the virtue, not patience that people <laughs> we take care of. Yes. Um, and I had never read that before, but I, I kind of started to think, you know, what, what exactly would that mean? And um, I kind of imagined jo- St. Joseph as a mirror of patience, meaning that probably like a lot of other virtues, that he was constantly surrounded by virtue in his household, and that in a way he probably over time grew to reflect those things, almost like the Magnificat of Mary reflecting God's grace, that within his family he was kind of surrounded by virtue. And I just, at the time, I just kept thinking about what would it have been like to be St. Joseph, you know, in the Holy Family, surrounded by our Lord and Savior, of course, and then the only other person in the family is sinless. To kind of be the only person, in, to kind of be the only only person Poor in the guy. room at all times. Yeah, can you imagine being the only guy in the it's room? It's always your fault. Who, yeah, yeah. Who had ever sinned? And and I thought, well, in a way, there's there's almost an honor in that to to being the the person who can kind of reflect those virtues of the people around you. And and I started to think about how, as a male obstetrician gynecologist, I sometimes felt the same way that you know I'm constantly dealing with things that are not necessarily above me, but in some ways above me, you know, things like pregnancy, childbearing, breastfeeding, you know, things that I would never be able to do myself, things that are completely outside of my nature. Um, And yet here I am being intimately involved with them. Um, And I I started to kind of imagine that in some ways, maybe that's how St. Joseph felt, you know, constantly surrounded by these things that he could, you know, that were above his plane kind of, but um, that, that he had the honor to kind of participate in at a level that other people didn't. And, and that's very much the way I feel about, especially obstetrics, that I have a really unique privilege to participate in those mysteries of the human body, you know, pregnancy, childbearing, breastfeeding, at a level that most men never have a chance to. Yeah, it's interesting. By, hear- being, by being in there. Yeah, hearing you say that, Jonathan, I, I find myself saying to women commonly on the, the beginning of labor, just, just before labor begins, you're about to experience something that's one of the defining things that makes you and I different. I can (laughs) never experience what you're about to experience. Um, And when I find myself saying that, it it almost always seems to strike a chord with the woman as though to say, wow, you know, you're right. Because so much in society today, we try to minimize the differences between men and women. As a male OBGYN, I find myself emphasizing the differences so, so often. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Now, you two are becoming endangered species, aren't you? Well, yes, because I'm <laughs> yeah, so that's old. That's the... <laughs> yeah, it is true, though. I mean, when I, I trained uh, at the University of Florida uh, in medical school and then started residency in 1991, Jonathan, and, uh, you know, at the time it was probably 70-30% male-female OBGYNs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I believe the most recent statistic I saw was around 15, 17% of OBGYNs uh, are males. Um, and you've lived really through that transition. So I think the dynamic had to be considerably different for you than it was for me. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And I, I will say either you are clairvoyant or you are very well read on your literature, because actually in, in this month's issue of the Green Journal, in the November issue of Obstetrics and Gynecology, there was an article exactly about this looking at how do we fix the problem of so few men going into, into OBGYN. And actually, those numbers that you gave were within like 5% in both cases. So, so who, <laughs> who they, perceives they kind of, it as a problem, Jonathan? Well, in this article, they, you know, they were saying that it's, it's um, the training environment see it as a problem, like the program see it as a problem, because um, not just in medicine, but in a lot of different in a lot of different industries, you know, experts say that, you know, diversity in the workplace, especially diversity of gender, um, helps with production. It helps to decrease conflict and it just helps um, groups with problem solving. And so they're finding a lot of residency programs that um, their work environments are too homogenous that it actually can lead to increased conflict, decreased productivity. And, you know, in my program, I, I, I trained in a program of 36 residents and 36. I would say for three 
Yeah, for probably three out of the four years that I was there, I was one of only two male residents. Wow. I think one of the, yeah, I think I think one out of the four years that I was there, we we got up to three male residents out of thirty six. But um, I mean that that really does make a difference, I think, on work dynamic and production. And so in this article, they saw it as a problem for that standpoint. It is interesting, you know. I practice in in a uh, mixed gender environment, you might say. Uh, we have several certified nurse midwives. Um, I have a male physician partner and a female physician partner, and I really do think we're much better because of our differences. Now, our personalities are different. Our perspectives are different. Um, we agree on all of the fundamental things um, in terms of morality and, and, and the church and her teaching. But yet we come at those from a different perspective. And so I, I would really argue you're spot on with this idea that you're made better by diversity. And most people are arguing today that diversity is a goal. Yes. Um, right. It, it's funny. If there were, <laughs> if there were no female... I don't know, family physicians, we would probably think that was a problem. The fact that there are really very few male OBGYNs, not everybody agrees that that's a problem. Right, right. And, you know, I, the, this article saw diversity as a goal in and of itself. In a, in a way, I think diversity is sometimes more a means. You know, it's something that, you know, when it happens naturally, when it's allowed to happen, leads to better production. Mm. But it's hard, to, it's hard to kind of just be aimed for um, in and of itself, you know. Jonathan, now that you've been in private practice for almost a year and a half, have you gained any new insights into caring for women that weren't as fully formed when you were in residency or medical school? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I I don't know if it's from necessarily the year and a half of practice or just from another year and a half of life experience or maybe both. Um, you know, probably the biggest thing that I've grown to appreciate in the, the time out of, out of residency that I've had is um, shared decision making. Hmm. This um, this idea that you know, for most management situations, there's not necessarily one or even two right answers, and that oftentimes the physician may not be fully privy to all the factors that the that the woman has to make the the best decision for for herself. And so I've I've encountered that a lot, especially in the the outpatient setting. That um, that entering a shared decision-making model where the physician more or less educates and counsels and gives anticipatory guidance and then talks about risks and benefits, but doesn't necessarily push one, you know, treatment modality over another, um, really works out best for most patients. And I, I've just, I've kind of noticed it just by observation that when, when I do that, oftentimes patients have completely different choices about what they would do, what they would do, even when they're given the exact same set of information. And, and I've really found not only for them, but even as a provider, that I often feel more satisfied coming out of those encounters. And that's very different than the training environment where, you know, I'm looking out for number one and I'm trying to train my brain to think of what the right answer is for, for a given situation. Oh, good points all. You know, Jonathan, I struggle personally, particularly recently, with this idea that it has become, if you are anti-contraception and or anti-abortion, you're by default anti-woman. And I'm not sure how that connection became so well, um, you, you know, well-made. But, but I find it maddening sometimes that I've spent 25 years of my career being what I call very pro-woman, but yet someone else is going to label me anti-woman because of my position on contraception. How have you encountered this, um, this stigma and how has it affected you? Yeah, it's so true, and it is it is maddening at times. I I probably most encountered the, the stigma when I was going through um, residency uh, applications and applying to different residency programs because mm. when I was applying and on interviews, I would be very upfront with programs and say what things I felt comfortable doing and didn't feel comfortable doing. And you know, contraception was one of the things that I wanted programs to know that I wasn't going to be comfortable doing. I didn't think it was right, and I also medically didn't think it was it was appropriate. Um, and I found that at most, a majority of the programs that I interviewed, it was kind of a non-starter and I kind of expected that. And, mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason that I brought it up because I didn't want to end up at a program where it was going to end up being an issue. But, um, very often I, I got the perception from the, the program directors of the programs that, that it was because of that. It was because that position was, was perceived as being anti-woman. Right. Um, 
Now, I, I was a little bit surprised that at the program where I had gone to medical school, although it was similarly a very academic and very secular program, I expected that reaction, but didn't quite get that reaction, um, that they didn't perceive that they didn't agree with that position, but they, they also didn't see it as, an, as being anti-woman. And I think part of the reason is because they knew me as a person from medical school. They, they knew, um, you know, they knew me personally. And I think oftentimes people just make that assumption if they don't know someone, but they know that they hold that position and they'll assume that about them. But that if they know them well, then they can kind of take it on just face value as just a belief, but not necessarily associated with other beliefs about women. That that's. But I, I definitely think that's true. I think you are absolutely right that there is a difference between refusing to do a procedure versus refusing to care for uh, a patient. We should always care, but maybe sometimes refuse. Um, a procedure because yeah they're not synonymous they they are not synonymous well Jonathan what right. in the last uh, 30 seconds what what uh, would you like to leave with our listeners um, I would just I mean it kind of seems like we built a theme here I, I would really encourage both men male and female residents to really consider the the specialty of, of caring for women it's obviously an extremely important vocation at this point in time in our culture and in our field um, and I think that they'd find a lot of the virtues that, uh, that Dr. Straub and I have been talking about during this, uh, during this discussion. Thanks for being with us, Jonathan. And thank you, listeners, for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you want more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And Tom, our listeners can also download our podcast on Google Play or iTunes. And if you do, please uh, leave a rating for us because more ratings mean more listeners. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud signing off until next time. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor where we'll be discussing medical errors with Dr. Loris Calgen of the University of Iowa Hospital System. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.